Net-A-Porter presents the Incredible Women podcast, Series 6, Champions of Change. Welcome to the Incredible Women podcast, where we are celebrating champions of change. We will be introducing you to women who are leading the charge, driving change and really pushing for progress through their work. Some you'll already be familiar with and others we're excited for you to meet. I'm Kay Barron, Fashion Director at Net-A-Porter, and I'm so excited to be joined for this episode by a personal hero of mine, author and journalist Lisa Tadeo. I've always um, sought to do the same for other readers that other writers had done for me, which namely is to make one feel less alone. Even as an avid reader, I have never discussed a book more than Tadeo's debut bestseller, Three Women, which was published in 2019. The author spent eight years finding the women who would share their stories, and then she immersed herself in their lives in order to capture their complicated, heartbreaking and traumatic experiences of sex and desire. The result is a masterpiece, and it spoke to all of the women in my life and some of the men who read it. Tadeo then released her debut fiction novel, Animal, in 2021, which explored female rage, and a book of short stories, Ghost Lover, in 2022. Meanwhile, Three Women has been adapted for television, starring Shailene Woodley, with Tadeo acting as screenwriter and executive producer. And it will be released to a new audience of soon-to-be Lisa Tadeo obsessives this year. As you can tell, I am a massive fan. But enough of my obsession. Let's meet her to discover more. Hi, Lisa. I have to say I am so excited about speaking to you today. Um, you've basically you. been you've basically been the soundtrack to kind of my holidays with my best friend when we both read books your books at the same time and then quote different bits back to each other. Oh, that is so cool! <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and just and just like discuss and then kind of stare into the middle distance when we've read a line. <laughs> so we're celebrating champions of change in this series, which is obviously what mm-hmm. we feel and know you are. Um, but how would you describe your relationship to change? Oh God. Um, <laughs> well, it's it's uh, large scale change, uh, change that is for the better of society, even when it's uncomfortable. I am a huge fan of, um, but I'm a little bit of a hypocrite because change in my own life uh, scares the shit out of me. Like having to move, having to change, uh, saying goodbye to anybody um, that you know that that I work with or. Anything like that. Any any sort of goodbye change is a difficult change for me. Any additive change where a new person comes in, I'm okay with. But um, the deletion of people or places scares me. But I want to talk to you, obviously, about the hugely successful Three Women first, um, which is soon to hit TV screens um, and has become a global sensation. What did you want to achieve with that book in the first place? And as it was such a long project, did you ever worry that you'd taken on too much? Yes. Um, what was I trying to achieve? Um, I was trying. I, I really, I think that um, in all of my work, even starting from when I was a, a kid writing, I've always um, sought to do the same for other readers that other writers had done for me, which namely is to make one feel less alone. Uh, so with three women, that was probably the biggest, the height of um, the height of my ambition was that 
I had come off of losing my parents. I felt utterly alone in the world. And I read um, Joan Didion's A Year of Magical Thinking after my mother passed away. And that made me feel less alone. So going into three women, talking to these women who had lost um, love or or just felt completely and uh, utterly unheard and unseen in the world. I wanted to make them feel less alone, and I, in turn, hoped that their stories would make other women feel less alone. And yes, multiple times along the way, I felt I had taken on too much, and I kept thinking, um, after each story that I had told, I, I would go into my editor and be like, okay, so it's one woman. <laughs> it's going to be this woman. Because I can't do this again. And he said, that's great. Just do it a couple more times. <laughs> Did you go to a yes. point where you were like, nope, two, that's it. We're just doing two women each time. By the, t- the time that I did it with the one woman, which was Lena, who was the first woman, the, the housewife in rural Indiana, I, I had already, by the time I found um, Maggie, I had already kind of sort of found Sloan as well. So once I'd found them and once I knew that they were interested in being a part of this. I, I, I wasn't going to let them go. It was more after finding Lena, but not having found anyone else. I was like, that's it. <laughs> There's nobody else who's going to talk to me. I've canvassed the earth and these are the only people. I mean, incredible achievement. And there are also three very real women whose identities you've protected when writing, other than see Maggie, who um, used her real name. And you're a screenwriter and executive producer on the TV show. But how how does it feel to see it interpreted for TV, especially when you're the only one who knows these women? Well, in Maggie's case, Maggie was a consultant on the show. So the people who were telling her story did get a chance to meet her. Um, Not, you know, not that early on in the process. So there was a lot of stuff that had happened before she um, came on. But... Uh, with the other two, yes, I was the only one who who knew them. It was, I have to say, you know, everyone who who participated in bringing them to life, specifically the women, the the actresses, the actors themselves, Betty Gilpin, who played Lena, Shailene, who played Gia, who was based um, on me, and Dewanda Wise, who played Sloane, and Gabrielle Creevy, who played Maggie. All of the women had read the book with a um with just such an incisive uh, understanding of it that they brought their own personhood to the roles but they also so magnificently seemed to have known them so i i have to say it was uh, it was incredibly just it was a divine process almost in that regard it felt like the the amount of respect that everybody had for one another, um, specifically the respect that the actors and the directors had for the women that they were portraying, was so great that, um, yeah, I, I, I it was it was an amazing process. And the women, the three women, how do they feel about it, and how they're portrayed and cast? Have you spoken to them? Nobody's really seen it, but I did talk to Lena, who uh, had not. Lena's not too much in the in the world of, you know, she's not a big, um, it's not watching the sorts of move, the current films that much. She's more of a an old movie lover. So she didn't know Betty Gilpin, um, looked her up and was just like, oh, my God, and then started watching a bunch of other things she's done. And it's just so excited to see it. 
Um, Maggie met Gabrielle Creevy, who's playing her. And I think they had a really just amazing, magical meeting that I was so happy about because I was nervous about it. So they all, they're all excited to see where, where it goes and how. And I'm probably a little bit scared, too. Um, I can't imagine not being scared. How did it feel for you to say to see Shailene kind of portray you? Um, I mean, Shailene, I just I absolutely adore her as a as a human being and as an actor, I I find her just absolutely unbelievable. The portraying of of the the Gia, the the sort of me character, you know, she she did a lot of things, um, and I, I would see her sort of like observing me sometimes. And she did a lot of things that did. That, that when I was like, oh my god, that's me, um, and it was amazing. But also, she brought, um, you know, we had a lot of talks about it. And even though you know it was based on in me, it's also its own character. And she brought um, she brought ideas to that character that are just so intelligent and. Uh, just the right choices for what the character needed to be for the show. And that, you know, when it didn't mean being somewhat similar to me, then it wasn't. And when it did, then it was. And I just have uh, such wild admiration for her as both a human and an artist. And I think that she used the faculties of both to make this character. And I think it's some of the most tremendous work she's done and that I've seen, period. I'm desperate to see it because I think, I mean, the way that that book, um, you know, touched so many people's lives. And, and I think people do see themselves in it in the different, you know, different parts of, of, of the different stories. And it did change the way that women talk about desire and how they perceive their own desire and even talking about it. And when I was reading it, it did feel like a personal therapy session. In fact, I feel that this podcast with you might be my own personal therapy session. If you don't mind. <laughs> Happy, happy to. <laughs> yeah, um, especially when, you know, dealing with difficult relationships that I've, I've had in my life, friends have had in theirs. When when writing it um, and you were embedded in these women's lives telling their stories, was it a form of therapy for you too, in a way? Yeah, um, utterly. It was, you know, it, it, it was such a symbiotic relationship. Um, it was a beautiful situation, and especially now in, in retrospect, I can really... Uh, really appreciate how magical it was. There's nothing that is more helpful to empathize with another human being than to get as sort of granular as possible in, in what they're feeling and, and all of the details, like an investigation. And in hearing them go through their own, their investigations of their own selves, it just opened up so many I would be like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I didn't, I feel the same way and I didn't realize that. But when someone just openly spills how they're feeling to you without fear of some sort of retribution or that you're going to, you know, get angry about it or, or that they have to pay you money or whatever, you know, is it stops us sometimes. Um, to see people doing that for me, towards me, made me feel, made me do it back, you know, like it just felt, it just became a, a, friendship and a, and a relationship and, and a mutually beneficial one. Well, I was going to say, to, to get them to trust you to that level, to to share all of those details is an incredible achievement. But also, as you were saying, kind of be, almost being a therapist, being a friend to them, were there not times when you're like, Lena, don't do that? <laughs> yeah, you know, with Lena, it was probably the most 
difficult because her um, her situation was the one happening in real time as we were getting to know each other. She was, you know, uh, contemplating having an affair with her high school lover. And then after she did begin the affair, she would sometimes go and sometimes do things that I that I worried that if it were a friend and I wasn't writing a book and I wasn't whatever, I might, you know, the, the sorts of advice you would want to give to a friend who is is who can't see clearly for themselves what's going on. But ultimately, and, and it's a thing that I, I think is true of, of friendships also. I mean, this, it did become a friendship, obviously, with Lena, but um, with all of them. But one of the things I learned, we're all, for the most part, when it comes to love, going to do the stuff that we want to do. You know, like, if you are besotted with a person, and even if every bone in your body tells you it's wrong, and your friends are all telling you it's wrong, chances are that you're still going to do whatever you're going to do for a, a couple of more weeks, months, years, um, is pretty high until you're ready to stop it yourself. And with Lena, I I, I felt that so, um, so avidly. And I also felt that she didn't want me to stop her from, from doing the things, and nor did I want to affect what she did in either direction, in a positive or negative. I mean, certainly not <laughs> negative, but I didn't, I, I was so afraid of affecting anything at all by inserting myself into her life. So yes, there were many times that I was like, oh God, don't do it that way. I mean, uh, so when she would ask me for advice, what I would try to do more than anything else was just give her an example from my own life of something I had done or and wished that I'd done differently when it came to love. And that was, I, I think it's really just about letting the person know that you care, you understand where they're at, and you're there for advice. But ultimately, very few people want advice or solutions from someone else. I know. I was going to say, I'm trying to think of all the conversations I've had with friends. Over and over again, the advice is is ignored. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and also in reverse, when they've told me things, I know I've ignored what they've said too. Even yeah. though in the time you're like, I know that is the best course of action. Exactly. But that's not what I'm going to do right now. Exactly. And I have just read Ghost Lover. And a change in that that kept recurring is how desire changes as women age. But maybe I was honing in on it as something that... Um, I am kind of feeling at the moment and just the idea of how women are seen to themselves and how they're seen to men. Um, and and when I wrote this question, it was actually, you know, was it intentional and something that you think of personally? But then I've since read that you've actually been writing those stories since pre-Three Women. Yes, yes. Um, but did that, that did that idea of, of, of age kind of come into it as, as, as a theme when you were putting those stories together? Um, yeah, I've all, well, for starters, I think that I've always been really, even before I was, I wrote the short story that's, um, in that collection called 42 when I was like 30 and, um, it was published when I was 42 and to see it out, out there and to see the sort of things that I knew I would think when I was 42, but I'd already started feeling in my late twenties, early thirties was very sobering. I'm like, ow. It's not that old. Um, <laughs> yes, I would say at 43, some of it was like, this is brutal, Lisa. <laughs> I'm 43 now as well. Um, yeah, I my mother 
had me when she was 41. Uh, and my mother was very, was very cognizant of it and very cognizant of age. And she had been very beautiful and she was obviously still beautiful when I, I knew her, but she would always talk about this, um, this old, this, you know, this faded um, beauty that, that she missed. And so I grew up with that so present in my brain uh, that I didn't, uh, it's not so much my obsession as it is my mother's that that carried over. I, I guess that's the best way to explain it. But I've, I've always, what my mother's obsession with it forced me to see and look at was the way that society did look at, at women who were just women aging. It's just this crazy thing that we everybody ages. We all know we age. But we kind of act as though it's a shock. Um, other people act it. Women themselves act it. I, I just, it, so much is put on on the female time clock from biology and when you can procreate and when's the right time to do that. And when it, it's so, it's such an obsessive amount of pressure put on that that I really wanted to, in a way, satirize it because it's it's so it, it's so sad. Um, it's sad that we continue to do it. It's a fact of life, and the way that other societies treat aging is so wildly different. And you know, treating someone who's older as rightfully as someone who's who's a, a garnered all this wisdom, someone that you can learn from. Um, to treat it in in our in some societies as though it's it's an expiration date is really horrendous, and it's something I think about a lot. Is it quite a cathartic way to write about that as well, though? Yes, for me, all honesty is cathartic, and the things that are in Ghost Lover are, um, you know, I wrote probably twenty, thirty percent of the stories before and during Three Women, and then the balance after. So it's safe to say that it's always been a something I've thought about and an obsession of mine, both um, looks and age and, and the, the tools that women are given when they're young that are taken away from them by biology and society as, as they get older. I always have been so saddened by that and also saddened by the fact that we we act in some ways that that stuff shouldn't matter. And then we have these private discourses with ourselves that we don't often share with friends or other people. But I've heard a lot of them from my researching and interviewing. So I like to put down exactly what I'm hearing out in the world or in my own head. You have this amazing gift. I'm just going to keep saying that to you. <laughs> I'll keep taking it. <laughs> There's more to come. Um, because you have this gift of capturing these feelings that many women have had um, but you describe them with a kind of lyrical turn of phrase that makes the feelings easier to comprehend and these are just I've pulled some of my favourite quotes from you um, from Three Women and Animal that completely floored me at the time um, and this is when I kind of stare into the middle distance after reading these um, so there's one that I know that a lot of people have um, quoted back to you which is we pretend to want things we don't want so nobody can see us not getting what we need Sometimes there's nothing better on earth than someone asking you a question, which I think that one really kind of struck home. There should be a stronger word than regret. And this is a personal favourite because, again, it's just incredible. Let me tell you, men love cruelty. It reminds them of every time their fathers or mothers didn't think they were good enough. Cruelty looks better on a woman than the perfect dress. <laughs> and I think 
I mean, what is your writing process? And when you write a line like that, that's been since been quoted over and over to you, do you know when you write it, the power that they hold? That's such a good question. I try to, um, I try to use phrases and words, like you said, that will help people understand exactly what I mean. And will just, just getting to the heart of, of the point as sometimes it's to be as simple as possible. Other times it's to, it's to grab something from another walk of life, you know, namely a metaphor to, to help um, ease, the, pave the way for the understanding. I do spend a lot of time making sure that um, I, I go sentence by sentence to make sure that I'm not wasting space uh, and wasting people's time, frankly, is how I feel about reading or making any work of art these days. It, you know, you don't want to waste people's time. There isn't a lot of time and there's a lot of stuff out there to see and look at. You know, sometimes there's a line I write that I'm like, oh, that is the line that I would need to say to my friend Jennifer for her to understand exactly how um, this woman Lara feels. So sometimes I find that line and I know it it will make Jennifer get it. And that is enough for me sometimes. I'm like, okay, this line, I know this person will get it with this one. So... I do know sometimes, but I don't know how many people. I don't know how many people will hate it or hate me for saying it. But <laughs> sometimes I know. But also you want that, that reaction as well. You don't want everyone to love everything. No, not at all. And that's the thing, because I think, you know, like the old adage, you can't, you know, can only please some of the people some of the time. I'm much more interested in really getting like 17 people to go, wow, that's exactly how I felt and willing to lose, you know, four people who are like, I'm that woman is a sociopath and I'm not reading anything <laughs> she writes. You know, I'm okay with that. I'm also, I, I really, like you said, I think that strong feelings are so interesting. And when someone tells me they hated something that I've written, made, whatever, I'm not hurt by it. I, I'm not, you know, I mean, I guess maybe I'm, I'm, Maybe I, I can say that because I have had people like things, but I haven't, I've never really been hurt by a, a bad review or, or someone just telling me to my face, which I do have often too, because I'll have people come to, um, to book events and tell me that they hated three women but loved Animal or vice versa. And do they go, in, do they go into detail as to why they hate it? Uh, do you have to just, like, listen people. to the criticism in person? <laughs> Oh yeah, sometimes yeah, sometimes it it's funny because they'll see that I'm I'm approachable and like and like nice, like because you can kind of say anything to me, because um, I do I can take it, and I think that that people can recognize that pretty fairly quickly. So they'll start saying something, they'll be met with a smile or like a kind sort of like, oh, tell me more. And then they'll be like, and I just like, and then like, it just made me question my, and I just hated that. And then I hated this and I threw the book across. I've had a lot of, I threw the book across the room. And I was like, okay. Um, but with like total like glee that they're telling me that they threw it across the room and I sit there and I'm like, okay. But I like that. I like that. Um, I like that. I like anything where one feels, you know, even though sometimes feeling is really uh, scary, it also feels like you're alive when you, when something connects with you and something, whenever you look at your phone and it's not just like a sort of like, 
oh, okay, when it's like, oh, God, that kind of feeling that's exciting to me as a, as a, as a taker in of art. So if I'm producing that sort of reaction from time to time, I'm, I feel, you know, I feel good about it. Well, definitely. I think it's always, you know, when it's something's triggered conversation in people and they want to have the discussion about, mm-hmm. about it, it's much more flattering than something a bit like, yeah, it's all right. I think that's the kind of yeah. like the work kind of meh. It's, you know, it's, totally. it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so dismiss, just dismissive. Oh. It's, it's death. <laughs> and in terms of your writing process, because you're saying that you wrote some of the stories from Ghost Lover during the period when you were researching and writing Three Women, but how can you, how do you kind of like move between kind of characters and different stories like that? Do you find that quite easy? Uh, I do. I, I find it easier to be able to balance between projects when I have to do it because that's my job. Like, it's like, oh, today there's a deadline on this script. It needs to be in by this week. Um, You know, obviously nobody likes having to do things because they have to. (laughs) It's just the worst. But when I have the freedom to to, to write at a less wild pace, I do love the freedom of, say, when I was writing Three Women... To be able to write a short story um, on a day that that a woman that I was talking to didn't want to talk to me or wasn't available, um, instead of feeling stuck and and going, oh, that's it, that's the end of that. I have to, you know, this whole day is now. I'm just not going to get any work done because this person's busy or or this wasn't supposed to happen. To be able to do another job that maybe you could also get paid for, um, or another job that just makes you that is a catharsis is. Uh, is something that I really enjoy and makes me feel like there's freedom in 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 my life. So you're quite disciplined then, in terms of like a structure and a schedule of how you do it. I mean, yes and no. It, it's I'm I'm so busy uh, these days that there is no without structure. There would be just chaos. So I do I have to be structured. It, that's what kind of like the deadlines demand. But yeah, I mean, I have I have these dreams of of not having to do things and then have and then when I was pregnant with my daughter, I would structure I would wake up at five because I I was like, this is gonna be the last time I have I get to write in my life. So I'm gonna just do it. Um, I would wake up at five and write till like 11am and then take an hour walk and then come back. And it was just like this magical time where I, I, created the structure it worked there was we were living on an island with kind of no nobody really around so the structure worked there was no interruptions um I haven't I so so the fact that I've done it once gives me the hope that I can do it again (laughs) but I haven't done it since then my daughter's eight now um and I've let my structure be dictated by my deadlines which is um so no I don't I'm I'm kind of a mess at the moment You've also written about um, Woman's Rage, which was the basis of your first novel, Animal. Um, and I did read that, um, it was an interview you did recently, I think, and then you, you oh, something was happening in your day and you just opened the front door and screamed into the street. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. <laughs> which, which I admire. But where, where did that idea come from to write about Woman's Rage and how do you cope with rage? Other than, well, other than screaming into the street. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, how do I cope with rage? 
writing is one of the ways that I cope with it. Um, saying it out loud, you know, saying the thing that is pissing me off, I think, is is a really helpful way for me to cope with it. Um, you know, I, I feel that a lot of a lot of rage comes from grief and pain. And um, oftentimes it's easier when you have felt something truly awful uh, and you feel powerless against that feeling of pain. It's much less powerless to insert a feeling of, of rage, to swap one in there and to, you know, to find someone or something to to put all of your energy into uh, a sort of revenge narrative. And the revenge doesn't need to be against one person. It can be against a thing. So uh, for me, for me, rage and, and writing about anger feels like a, a more cathartic way to manage the pain sometimes. And I know, and also there's just female rage has often very little it's not a commodity that we um, that we like to look at, and 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 we don't want to plant it in a garden and see it grow. Um, we want to bury it down so deep that it pops up in in these like weedier ways. Um, so I, I think that rage is something that female rage specifically is something that we should have more of an allowance for, and not a not a an abject sort of negative reaction of, no, that person, that's a shrew, that's a witch, that's a, you know, whatever negative words um, we call women when they act out. Well, I think also it's about owning the word rage, because I think at one point it was basically branded as hysteria. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and I think that's always been the issue, because, you know, you don't want to look like some kind of hysterical woman harpy Uh, yes all the words all of the words that we have for for hysteria is exactly i mean they used to have you know the waters to calm hysteria just the ideas of all of the ways that female feelings were um were like just muffled um yeah it makes me really angry (laughs) because <laughs> I, I have I have the most kind of like outrageous com- like imaginary conversations in my head with people. You know when you're so angry and you can deliver a line brilliantly. Yes, and and that always helps because I'm like because I feel like I've actually done it in real life. I'm like oh brilliant okay well I won yes, that it- I won that battle. <laughs> <laughs> they don't exactly they don't know they're in a fight with me but I've won it. You exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and actually I was going to say you, and you mentioned it there um, and obviously one of the biggest sources of of rage um, is grief. And you've said that you, like I read, I don't know if it's true or not, that you're writing a non-fiction book about grief. Is that going to be in the same vein as Three Women or is that yes. is that is there a plan yet? That is the plan for it to be in the same vein. I've been just in the sort of very nascent stages of, of looking for the right people um, to to tell the right story. But yes, it's it's it'll be the sort of the same in-depth look at, at a, a couple of people. And that must be, I mean, trying to f- source the right woman to speak to or the right people to speak to about grief and having to hear those stories to, to select who's right must be a really draining, traumatic experience. Yes, that's why it's going slowly. Yeah. Um, it's really hard. It's it's hard because also part of what my, um, and this was the same needs I had for three women and, and the people I I was selecting or that were self-selecting in a sense, um, was that this would be 
beneficial for them, or at the very, very least, not the opposite, not, not you know, taking away from their lives or making it harder or sadder or more painful. So when it comes to this, that that's really big, that because of my, my, my relationship to pain and grief and my understanding of how um, of how absolutely awful it can be, I want to make sure that whoever will be talking to me is doing it, it, that it's helping them and not and not sort of slowing down their recovery. Um, and that's, you know, that's not it's not the easiest thing to know, but you can kind of, you know, you can it just takes a lot of effort to make sure that that's what that, that you're on the right path, that you're not on a path to to exploiting someone's pain because that's something that I wouldn't be able I wouldn't be able to live with myself as as a person. But how do you, how, how do you distance yourself from hearing all those stories? How do you then look after yourself when you're, you know, listening to a lot of a lot of grief and trauma? I don't I don't know. I haven't figured that part out yet. Certainly with the grief stuff, I'm trying to figure that out. I'm trying to set boundaries for myself so that I can but it's that's the thing it's like you know when you're talking to when I was talking to Lena you know there were some days that Lena wanted to talk to me when I was I wanted to like go to the gym or something and I would stay home and not go to the gym because Lena it it wasn't a cut and dry thing and I I owed it to her to sort of delete some of my boundaries um and that's something that with grief I I can imagine being very similar to if if someone's telling me all of their stories and and their pain and their and them and I'm just like taking it down and then one day they want to talk and I'm working on something else I'm probably going to you know shelve the other thing I'm doing and and put them into the priority position because of the emotions that are involved well, maybe when you were getting up and writing at five o'clock in the morning when you're pregnant, maybe that's when you're going to put your self-care in. It's going to be a 5am start now. It's 5am. And you've also spoken a lot about fear and personal fear. Um, do you think that's something that holds you back or pushes you forward? There's a, I'm forgetting who it is, but it's, I have been afraid every day of my life and it hasn't stopped me from doing anything. I wouldn't say that's true of me, a hundred percent, but it is partly true. I, I I am I am always afraid. I am never not afraid. I'm never not afraid of flying on a plane. I am never not afraid of driving in a car. I am never not afraid of leaving my house. I'm never not afraid of staying in my house. And there are times that fear stops me, but for the most part, I just do it because I am so afraid of so many things that I, if I didn't, I, I wouldn't do anything at all. So I, I think I've, uh, yes, uh, yes, I'm afraid. And yes, I still do stuff. And it's, I'm, I'm crippled sometimes. And, and, it, and it doesn't, you know, I'm not like living in the present a lot <laughs> because of it. But I look like I am. You do, you do look like you are. But I was gonna say, since the release of Three Women um, in 2019, what has been the biggest change in your life? The biggest change since Three Women came out was that I started flying on airplanes again. That was the biggest sort of physical manifestation of a change. How long had it been since you'd last flown on a plane? Maybe five five years or so, I think. Um, 
Yes, I think it was about five years. And, you know, people um, people liking the book, people... Uh, re- I mean, it, it you know, it, it made me feel like... Um, I had been writing for magazines and and other things for for quite some time, so I had had I'd had some feedback, but to have a more um, widespread feedback was really it it made me feel like I was on the right path. So you know it it's it, it is nice to have it's it's really nice. I, I miss writing for nobody, but it also is really lovely to write for somebody. You know the idea of a deadline of someone giving you homework, of not letting someone down, to have a wider spread audience of not letting people down has been really rewarding um, for for the art and the work of it. Well, you're definitely writing for me. So I'm, um, yeah, just it's on my friend <laughs> on our holidays. <laughs> I, I want to come on that holiday with, with you guys. Oh, please do. Please <laughs> do. We, will, we won't give you what we won't give you a minute piece at all. We'll constantly, we'll be like, can you just, I want you to dissect this situation that I did. (laughs) I am so happy to. (laughs) Um, And then finally, um, who are the champions of change who are inspiring you? Gosh, you know, I just, um, I just heard uh, the other day that Sarah Polly, who, um, who directed the movie Women Talking, that, that set, and I think maybe all of her sets, um, but, but certainly that one, um, she, told everybody to bring their children to work um, and uh, and had a therapist on set and, and child care. And I just thought that was so beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's other people who do it too, but I, I haven't heard of them yet. But to hear that after working in Hollywood for a couple of years and seeing the sort of, you know, in a lot of ways uh, – having children, having anything that takes one away from the rat-tat-tat, you know, 24-7 hour nature of it is a liability. To have someone say your liability is not a liability, it is, it is, it is human life and, you know, I care. I think that's so absolutely stunning. And I, you know, I, I hope to be able to replicate something similar if I'm in the position to. But I, I just I think that that's the kind of thing, particularly in industries like film, television and books and, you know, industries where art um, art is, you know, we, we all want to do it. There's so many people there who if you're not going to write that book, someone else will write it for you. Um, because it's it's something that is deep within people who want to be writers and artists it, is that desire to do it. So if you're not going to do it, someone else will. The idea of instead of saying, oh, if you're not going to do it, I can find someone who will do it for less. The idea of saying, hey, I see you want to do that, but you are, you know, you have some life things. You have people in your life or you have pain in your life or you have an illness or you have this or that. Whatever it is to be able to make space for that other part of a human being um, and make them feel like they're still, you know, a, a, a part of society, even though they're not the, the, even though they might feel like the weakest link sometimes. I think that that is the best way of championing change, just championing humanity. Yeah, agreed. And also because it makes people feel very present when they're there because, you know, they feel like they've been supported and looked after. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and that's all that's all we want is to be supported and looked after. Exactly. And yet we don't do it for each other and we don't do it for ourselves. No, I'm going to do it for you. 
Thank you. I'll do it for you. Thank you so much. That was an absolute pleasure. The highlight of my week already, and it's only Tuesday. Gosh, that means so much to me. Thank you so much. Champions of Change was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Netaporte's content director, Alice Casely Hayford, and fashion director, Kay Barron. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Laura Hyde. Original music by Alexis Adamora and the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and tell us who your champions of change are.